This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today's topic is a topic that has dominated the news for a number of weeks. Uh, It's the topic of impeachment. And we're looking in particular at the historical development of impeachment as a part of our governing system, especially in the last few decades, uh, going back earlier, but particularly from the Clinton years to the present. And we have with us uh, my colleague and friend and someone who's been doing some of the most important writing and speaking on the subject in the entire country, uh, Professor Jeff Tulis. He's a professor in the government department here at the University of Texas, and he's a leading scholar of American politics uh, and the presidency in particular. He's the author of a number of important books, a book that had a deep influence on me and many other people in the field, The Rhetorical Presidency. He's also written on the presidency and the constitutional order, and most recently, really a wonderful co-authored book on the legacies of losing in American politics, a book that really makes the case that the losers often turn out to be the winners in the long run. Which, which can give many of us solace maybe right now. Jeff, it's great to have you on. Thanks for having me. Before we turn to our discussion with Jeff, we have, of course, our poem from Mr. Zachary Siri. What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? Two Images. Two Images. Let's hear it. There are two images in the mind of the American soul now. As we struggle through viscous nights when the stress of work, iPhone, and delayed election results coming through on the television. There are two images in the mind of the American soul now as we lean on coffee mugs for support on the clogged-up roads bumpy with the acne of our adolescent nation. There are two images in the mind of the American soul now, much like I am left with two images every morning that hang on the wall, stars and stripes, the lone star, and the Pledge of Allegiance drowned out by the crunchy sound of polynomials. There are two images in the mind of the American soul. One is ripped from the tabloid headlines that crashed a princess into a Paris tunnel wall. The other is blunt whiplash of slamming against truth, but the knowledge deep down that we will all have to feel how far away it is when our head slams back against the headrest. I mean, what just happened here? It seemed to come and go, the impeachment of a president like the January snow. Some of us remember the last time it happened, the same rooms, the same senators, the same lawyers, and one who defended murderers named after fruit juice. The same independent counsel now railing against independent counsels. I am too young now to remember what it was like when the president's sexual affairs were the scandal of the decade. There are two images in the mind of the American soul, the supposed two Americas, but they fight against the same sticky wind and relish in the same smell of drizzle along concrete sidewalks. These are the two images in the mind of the American soul, injustice and injustice, justified intrusions that languish in partisanship, and unjustified attacks that justifiably died in the mousetraps of democracy. Hmm. There's a lot in that, Zachary. What is your poem about? Well, my poem is really about um, America's reckoning uh, with the current impeachment trial, but also uh, with uh, the Clinton impeachment trial in particular. And what it's really about is how uh, this generation of Americans is growing up seeing more impeachments than uh, all past generations combined Hmm. had. And it's, um, I think it's an interesting comment on the state of our politics at the current moment. Well, that's a great place to turn to, turn to Jeff. How did we get where we are today? How did we get from Bill Clinton, uh, who comes up prominently in, Je- in Zachary's poem, uh, to where we are uh, today with this current impeachment, Jeff? Well, <clears throat> um, well, I'm not sure that 
there's a sort of direct link between Clinton and this impeachment. But uh, between the time of Clinton and now, we developed something that some people call hyperpartisanship, um, which is much more uh, problematic than what most people think is the problem, which is often called polarization. Mm, mm. We've had polarization in American politics throughout our history. Right. And, uh, and even at the most dire moments, when the compromises themselves were a problem, say the Missouri Compromise, there was a compromise. Right, <laughs> and, right, uh, exactly. And uh, so polarization is not necessarily a problem. What hyperpartisanship is, is, is the idea that you stick with your party even if uh, the opposing party uh, proposes your, your own policies or policies that you yourself proposed previously. So... Uh, there's some political scientists in uh, D.C., uh, Tom Mann and Norman Ornstein, who've written about this and uh, have a lot of vivid examples of uh, Obama coming into office. And not only does McConnell literally pledge that he's not going to uh, advance anything that Obama proposes, a kind of eerie symmetry between that, by the way, and the fact that he pledges not to uh, adhere to his oath in the right, uh, which is in, in the impeachment trial. In the impeachment yeah. trial, which yeah. is really striking. Right, you've written a lot about this. actually. Well, yeah, and the, the the short point on that is we've had people throughout American political history that haven't lived up to their oaths, just like people get married and uh, end up not being faithful to their marriage vows. But it's very rare that somebody would actually marry somebody who pledged not to right. follow their vow right. the night before they got married. Right, precisely. <laughs> and uh, so that's very, very unusual. Um, and But in any event, hyperpartisanship is a version of that where, um, in the case of Obama, Obama, one of his first pieces of legislation proposed was uh, a bill that, that uh, McCain, who he had defeated, had failed to to pass. And so he proposed it uh, in a way on his behalf. And McConnell even got McCain to oppose his own <laughs> bill as part of this uh, binding together of a, pol uh, of a party understanding itself more as a tribe than a political party committed to the ideas and, that brought them to And Washington. why has that happened? I mean, and, and that seemed to be the case with the Clinton impeachment, to connect it back to that, where there, was, there seemed to be such a, a mobilization around Newt Gingrich right. uh, of his supporters to do anything Right. To go after Bill Clinton, and perhaps as much on the other side to do anything to defend Bill Clinton. What what, what brought us to that moment? Because you're saying that's not that's not the norm in American history. It's not, and I think you're right to point to uh, Clinton. And you might, at some further podcast, want to have our colleague Sean Therio yes. uh, on here because he's written about the formative influence that Gingrich had on the Senate yes. in the way that he, in effect, politically educated all these House members who then went on to. And uh, uh, but what's interesting there is you get an initial movement on the part of of uh, Gingrich to actually advance a substantive policy agenda, um, which was then known as the Contract uh, with America, uh, or the Democrats thought of it as the Contract on, on America. America. <laughs> but uh, it was actually a substantive policy yes. agenda, and um, but uh, to do it, Gingrich uh, both got in a position to do it and then. Tried to advance doing it by uh, smashing some of the traditions and norms of the Senate in order to get the Republican Party in a position to be more powerful to advance those ideas. There was still an idea aspect to it, 
Uh, and what happens over time is that this smashing of these institutions to obtain power to advance ideas uh, uh, overruns mm-hmm. the notion that you go to politics to advance ideas in the first place. Right, right. So, now it's about winning at all costs. Yeah, right, right. And so many have said, you see this in the news all the time, it will come up uh, in the, the last minutes of, before the Senate votes uh, on Trump's uh, conviction or non-conviction. Uh, it, it's often said that impeachment is an inherently political process. Obviously, that's the case. But I hear you saying, Jeff, that this is a different kind of political process from how impeachment was intended by the framers. Is that fair to say? Um, it is. Well, first of all, it was always intended to be a political process. The point was that there are different kinds of politics. There's ordinary partisan contestation, and then there might be uh, high politics. And what, what makes it high politics is that it's a matter of contestable judgment that is not easily reducible to legal formulae, but is not just uh, an ideological or policy difference, but is a judgment about whether somebody, for example, has uh, abused their office, lived up to their duties, uh, fulfilled their responsibilities, um, or in some way violated the Constitution, which is not necessarily codified in the uh, in the criminal code. Right. Right. And as the nature of the office of the presidency that you and I have both written about has changed, of course, the nature of presidential abuse uh, has changed as well, right? Right. It's changed, but it's changed in a direction that was sort of uh, anticipated. So... Though those people that there are a lot of people in 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 the legal world now and academic world who are known for the so-called unitary theory of executive power, they maybe have gone too far in suggesting the uh, the uh, ambit uh, and scope of presidential power and denying any other competing powers. They they may have gone much too far in there articulation of this. I think but, they definitely have gone too far from my point of view. Well, and mine too. But but what I wanted to stress now is it starts with a true point, which is there is this argument for unity in the executive, which they take too far, but is in fact designed to make a, a president uh, a very powerful office uh, that has certain capacities that were lacking under the Articles of Confederation that were thought needed for a new country. Um, and so if you imagine that we didn't have any presidency at all and just said, well, what does this country need? And somebody said, we need the capacity to be able to respond to unforeseen contingencies. We need the capacity to respond to attacks quickly. We need the capacity to keep national right. secrets, all that sort of stuff. And then you build this institution that has those capacities. That institution is going to have an enormous amount of power, especially at the beginning of either a policy uh, cycle or war, even the possibility of starting war. Um, and so the notion uh, that the three branches are coordinate and co-equal under the Constitution, which they are, means that they all derive their authority from the Constitution, not from each other, but it can't mean that they have the same amount of power at any given moment, right. which is often the the image in textbooks on American politics that it's always stale made and gridlock, when in fact it's quite dynamic, so that the presidency has more power at certain moments, but that only makes sense in a republic if the Congress has more power at other moments. And in general, the way that should be conceptualized is 
prospectively looking forward, the presidency has more power. Retrospectively, judging what the president has done, the Congress should have more right. power. Um, and that structural idea is actually the most important feature of uh, the impeachment power and uh, the trial process and has actually been lost in the contemporary debate. Uh, Keith Whittington, who teaches at Princeton, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in the midst of this debate that should have gotten even more attention than it did because he, he pointed out that it's the second article that's really important and that really uh, reflects this because the second article is defending constitu- the, the Congress's prerogatives, its whole panoply of powers against the executive branch. Right. Uh, and if you don't uphold those, uh, the Congress has no power, and uh, you can't uphold those if the impeachment power isn't vital. Right, right. And this brings us actually yeah. to a question that one of our students has asked. Uh, this is uh, Trace Souter, who's a fourth-year biology major, who asks a question about this very topic. Let's hear Trace's question. After listening to the articles of impeachment being presented against Donald J. Trump, my question is what defines abuse of power and obstruction of justice? And knowing that there is at least some evidence against him, what more is needed to definitively say he broke these laws? And, and where Trace talks about obstruction of justice here, I think the, real, the reference in, in this case is to obstruction of Congress, which is the second right, article right. you were just talking about. So it's, uh, it's useful to, uh, just to clarify that for, for everybody. Uh, the Mueller report uh, has uh, 10 obstructions of justice. Uh, and those actually uh, might even be uh, indictable crimes, uh, but for a memo of the Justice Department saying that, that a president can't be indicted while, while in office. The, the articles of impeachment are obstructions of Congress, um, and they do re- uh, reflect, as the questioner um, asked, uh, the abuse of power. Uh, one thing that a lot of people don't notice is that Article 2, which is the article about the presidency, which was modeled to some degree on the uh, executive article in the New York State uh, Constitution. Um, uh, it's clearer in the New York Constitution uh, because it's labeled in a way that it isn't in, our, in the federal Constitution. But the, the structure is similar in which the president is given both powers and duties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, the duties is the key thing. Uh, because um, uh, uh, if you don't, if you don't, uh, if you don't adhere to them, you are in fact abusing your power. And so Madison was asked about this powers duty relation in both the uh, federal convention, the drafting convention, and in the Virginia ratifying convention. And he mentioned, I believe it was in the Virginia ratifying convention, that if in fact you had a president who has the quintessential executive power, which is the power to pardon, which we think of as unlimited, uh, that is, you can pardon somebody for almost any reason at all. It isn't actually unlimited because the imp- uh, impeachment is one of the limits. You, right. Can't, right. you can't pardon somebody who's been impeached. And I would argue, by extension, you might not be able to pardon somebody for an act to protect your own impeachment. But that's never been... It's never been litigated, but it's mentioned that there's this this rest- restriction. Madison goes further and says, look, it might be the case that we want a president to have this massive power, 
Uh, for example, because there might be civil unrest in which pardoning somebody who did something bad might actually be necessary for the domestic tranquility of the country or something like that. Um, but that kind of extraordinary power, which we might want somebody to have, can obviously be abused. Um, in the Clinton case, for example, he wasn't impeached for it, but on the day he left office, he he pardoned a uh, you know a campaign uh, a contributor, right, Mark, Rich, Mark Rich. Yeah, and uh, so there's some question about the corruption of that um, act. But um, Madison's point was. Um, look, in order for the pardon power to be robust, it obviously has to be broad, and we have to allow most of these pardons to stand, virtually all of them, except the impeachment ex- exception. But that doesn't mean we couldn't hold a president accountable for the way that he used the pardon power and actually said that was an abuse of office. Sure. Those six pardons, we're looking back on it now, and they were totally unjustified. They were done for corrupt purpose, whatever. And we're going to impeach you for that. And that was one of his examples of That's what it meant to abuse office. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And so the obstruction of Congress here, right, the, uh, the argument here is that uh, the president has actively prevented Congress from doing exactly what you're saying Congress's role is as retrospective judgment on the actions of the president and the legitimacy and constitutionality of those actions, right? Yeah, the president announced that, that, announced that they would simply not cooperate with the impeachment investigation. And uh, that's the fundamental claim. Um, and that's why even though they had all these sort of uh, back and forths about subpoenas and so forth. The the basis of Schiff's position was the president had said that that uh, no matter what we did, his executive branch was ordered not to cooperate, and you can't obstruct any more than that. Which, so, in your yeah. explanation, runs directly counter to recognizing the role of Congress. It's it's actually it's it's, it's delegitimizing Congress's work right. to oversee the president. Right, and not just an impeachment. So, uh, for example, before the impeachment inquiry was official as an impeachment inquiry, subpoenas were uh, issued for various uh, officials to testify, and they were contested by the uh, executive branch. And um, here's where things have gotten muddy and historically changed over time. In the 19th century, the Congress always enforce those uh, subpoenas on their, with their own powers uh, and, and methods, including having the sergeant at arms, uh, in, including holding people who refuse to abide uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, to attend uh, Congress on some uh, summoned by a subpoena. They would hold them in contempt of Congress. Right. In jail in Congress or in the D.C. prisons. Right, right. right. And they have the sergeant at arms. Now, they didn't end up having to actually do it with uh, actual executive branch officials because they didn't enough with uh, private citizens connected to those officials that the officials believed that they would be arrested. Right. And so they came and testified. We're talking about people like Daniel Webster, who had been former secretary sure. of state and brought in to testify um, uh, uh, about um, uh, State Department business. Um, and all sorts of other people in the 19th century um, were actually compelled to cooperate with Congress by Congress using its own powers and authorities vigorously. And then in the 20th century, uh, they thought it might be more efficient to use the Justice Department to enforce some of these rather than doing it themselves. Mm-hmm. And that began a kind of slide into abdication of their own 
power by actually delegating it, not just this, but so many things to the executive, that they lost both the memory, the experience, and the practice of institutional self-defense. And the Clinton impeachment is part of that story because Clinton did cooperate, but he also negotiated. Right. Congress did not simply call the people it wanted to call. There was an actual negotiation (laughs) between Clinton, which you could see as a step to where we are today. Well, it's actually supposed to be that. Uh, To some degree, that's okay. Um, You know, uh, in this impeachment uh, debate, the lawyer for the um, for the president said, you know, there's supposed to be an accommodation process. Well, it's not a a legal norm. It's a separation of powers practice that makes a certain sense, which is that the president, um, uh, out of some self-interested motive, no, no doubt, just as some of the congressmen might be acting out of a partisan motive, finds a constitutional argument that has merit on its own. And I'll give you one, because I can only find one, from the president's side in the current uh, impeachment. Early on in the impeachment process, when they decided to shift and to try to make it less contestable that you could actually uh, avoid these subpoenas, um, uh, Speaker Pelosi announced that they were transitioning to an impeachment inquiry, and these were the committees that were going to do to, to conduct that inquiry. And that ramped up the significance of the claims made on the president. And the initial response by the president's lawyers was very smart. Oh, let me let me just um, let me just back up a little bit. In the Clinton impeachment, um, to do the same thing, they passed a series of resolutions that specified how these committees were going to work, how the president's people could or could not participate, and all that stuff. In the initial moment of the current impeachment inquiry. Um, Nancy Pelosi just set it up herself. And she set it up herself because between the time of Clinton and now, the House rules had changed so that previously all subpoenas had to require resolutions. But now chairman of committees were given independent authority to issue subpoenas. And so she said, I am just telling these committees they can use their independent authority that they have under this new set of rules, the president's lawyers smartly responded, look, the Constitution gives the sole power of impeachment to the House, not to the Speaker of the House, unless by some formal process the House has given the Speaker of the House the responsibility to carry out their their will. So, that they didn't when they set up these rules for committee chairs they didn't set up them for impeachment they just set them up for normal politics this is impeachment so you have to have an impeachment vote that either says you speaker pelosi get to do stuff or we have a resolution like we used to have right and she eventually said okay we're going to have the resolution like we used to have and they passed these resolutions and right. in effect reauthorize these committees that is actually an example of the old way working and working the way it's supposed to work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She, she was forced to say it both not only had public resonance, but there was some merit to that position. And so she actually stepped up to the plate and said, OK, that, that was an accommodation. Right. And thereupon, the subpoenas should have been... They should have, right, yeah. And they should then, have then, yeah, the They, should have, been, they right. should have been, right. Zachary, yeah. you have a question. I was wondering how um, perjury and the specific charges against Clinton fit into this narrative of these changing institutions. 
how the uh, well now in the case of Clinton, uh, it illustrates something uh, that's uh, sort of true in the generally untrue uh, uh, presentation of Alan Dershowitz. Alan Dershowitz uh, advanced the proposition that you can only be impeached for something that is a legal criminal uh, violation or, or or a violation of some legal statute some statute it it can't be for abuse of office or violation of duty or something like that um now that's wrong as a matter of theory it's wrong as a matter of originalism if you care of any version of originalism framers originalism original meaning original every single one uh it's it violates a struck any structural theory and therefore 90 some percent of the law professors in the country who study this sort of thing say it's just plain wrong. However, there were lawyers sort of like Dershowitz during the Johnson impeachment. And uh, they uh, convinced the Senate to not vote on the uh, 10th article for Andrew Johnson, which is the one most interesting to me because it was about his rhetoric. And it was rhetoric that was abusive and sounded in many ways very similar, though not as bad as Trump's rhetoric. And they were persuaded that it wasn't, it didn't violate any law, even though it, it, it was a, an abuse of office. Uh, and so this notion got sort of set in motion in the political culture that you should, uh, that you should only be uh, impeached for things that violated the law. During the Nixon impeachment, it came up again. They had a big fight about that. And uh, uh, they decided to um, encase their abuse of power charges in legal language as a kind of concession to this proposition. Then they get to the Clinton impeachment, and instead of charging him with the act of, uh, of uh, having sex with an intern, an employee of the White House, and I would pause here and say, imagine today that the same issue came up after the Me Too movement. One could imagine that he would be impeached and convicted. Sure. Uh, because of thinking about all the CEOs around the country that are going down every week. But at the time, that aspect of it was uh, thought to be, well, um, it was consensual, and what law did he really violate? Um, um, And so uh, he was uh, asked about it uh, under oath and arguably, and lied about it. And then uh, he was charged with perjury. I started to say arguably because while he definitely lied about it, it was only arguable that it was perjury. People that remember this episode will know that he got on TV and said, to, uh, in answer to one question, it depends what the definition of is is. Mm-hmm. And in another point, he um, he described, uh, he, he, he argued that if you didn't have sexual in- intercourse, you didn't have sex. Right. And uh, and there are archaic definitions of sex in which that's true. In other words, that is a that is a that is a definition that has viability historically. And so be, he did that on purpose, sure, because he understood that perjury law is very very technical and requires all sorts of elements. Right. And I think that there is an argument that he didn't commit perjury, even though he unquestionably lied. Um, uh, but he was charged. But he was with charged with perjury. By Ken Starr. Be- he was charged with perjury because there's an argument he did commit right, perjury, right. and it was a law that was a criminal violation. Right. 
Right. So one of the arguments that's made uh, in the current impeachment trial uh, by Senator Lamar Alexander, for example, and others is, uh, and I believe Senator Murkowski, Lisa Murkowski also made this argument. Uh, Yes, um, Trump did something inappropriate in his phone call, but it doesn't rise to the level of impeachability, that he shouldn't be thrown out of office uh, for this. Uh, How does that to you compare to the claim that what Clinton did, that some make, uh, did rise to that level? Many of the people who are voting uh, against removing Trump voted to remove Clinton. Um, Do either of them, in your eyes, stand uh, at that level uh, of convicting and removing a president? And how should we judge these things? I have absolutely no doubt, one iota, that Trump far exceeds uh, uh, impeachable behavior. And over time, I've come to... And, and, I, and, and his behavior is much worse than what Clinton did. At the same time, I, I, was, I was not uh, averse at the time to the fact that Clinton was impeached. And retrospectively, um, and talking to my colleague Sandy Levinson in the law mm-hmm. school, who uh, uh, you know, reminded me of the many uh, members of his own administration that he got uh, unawares to them to lie on his right. behalf, right. Right. that an argument could be made that he, he should have been— Clinton. Uh, Clinton should have been impeached or forced to resign or something. And I, uh, I mention all that because I think that the story that is being told in the Senate now and the story that's been told historically— is that the thing that we want to worry about most in American politics is too much impeachment. Mm -hmm. Now, we've never had a successful impeachment, but the worry is that, well, if we impeach this guy, the the Republicans are saying, who knows how many impeachments we're going to have. Right. If we convict him, we've impeached him. I mean, if we we convicted him, we're opening the door to partisan impeachment uh, uh, trials of of most presidents. And, And my view is... That the opposite is the case, that we've had too few impeachments, not too many. We've never had any. And as a result, we've sort of uh, uh, disempowered the entire array of congressional tools that would all be robust if the possibility of impeachment was there to enforce them. So uh, I, that's one thing that I think uh, in, the po- in the general popular culture I strongly disagree with, the worry that there's been too much as opposed to the problem that there's been too little. And one of our undergraduates has asked uh, what we should do about that. This is uh, Julia Cuddy, who's a first-year student, a sociology and journalism major. Hi, my name is Julia Cuddy, and I'm a first-year sociology major. My question is, do you think that despite the numerous impeachment investigations put into place over the course of history, the fact that only three presidents in the U.S. have been impeached yet never removed from office has resulted in a weaker government less likely to productively fix a corrupt system. In other words, has the lack of enforcement when it comes to impeachment enabled presidents to act as if they're indestructible? Good question. Isn't that a good question? Good, excellent question, and the answer is, yeah, you're right on target. It's absolutely the case. And, and, and here's the interesting irony in it. The assumption is that if you have a successful conviction— uh, you're going to open the door to too many impeachments. And I think it's just the opposite, that if you have a successful conviction, you're going to have more presidents, as you suggested in your question, worried about how they behave in office so that they don't get impeached because it's a real possibility that they could. So I, 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 I'm not saying that if you open the door to impeachment of one president, you might not 
in the future have yet another one? Of course you might, but what would be wrong with that? Another way to put the point to the, the Republicans today is, well, if another president, Democrat or Republican, acts the way that Donald Trump does, yes, we want to impeach them too. Right. And, and Adam Schiff, in his closing speech, said the same thing. He said, I hope we don't have a Democrat like that. And he was even honest in saying, I'm not in your position, so I can't say definitively how I would feel and how you feel, but I hope that you feel the way I hope I, w- I, I, I wish I would feel, which right. is that we can't put up with this kind right. of thing. Right. The way to actually change behavior is to follow through on the conviction right. Right. for right. someone's misbehavior, right? Right. right? right. right. So, so what should we do, Jeff? I mean, we have to go forward now, and, and, and we hope we'll get through this mess somehow. Uh, as, as, a, as a scholar of the Constitution and the presidency in American politics, how should we go forward in, in future years if we have a chance to change this process? Well, the first thing is that there was a big debate about whether to do this impeachment in the first place, knowing as the people uh, impeaching, as the Democrats did, uh, that conviction was virtually uh, nullity, uh, virtually impossible. Um, and yet they went forward anyway. And Nancy Pelosi uh, delayed for a long time because she knew there were some costs to doing that. And she decided that the benefits outweighed the costs. And I think the first step in the answer to your question is, having gone through this process, even though a loss is the first step that you're asking for, uh, and this alludes to the book that you sure. <laughs> mentioned that I wrote, The Legacies of Losing. Sometimes it's actually uh, uh, losing is, in fact, the uh, resources and instruments t- for later uh, victories. Sometimes the dissenting opinions in Supreme Court cases sure. that go down uh, uh, on that side end up being much more vital much more informative and much more influential years later than the than the victorious uh, opinion uh, or the opinion the majority opinion of the court. So if we think of the the loss in the Trump uh, case as the kind of dissenting opinion, it's unquestionably clear that the rhetoric of the dissenters and the case of the dissenters is far more powerful than the case of the winners. And this is going to live on. The first way it lives on, and we don't know how it's in the short term, is it has the potential to improve the chances of the Democratic Party across the board in the next election. Potential does not mean for sure. But the resources are there if skillfully used to make corruption a central theme of yes. this campaign. Yes. And in making that case, one can revisit and also eluc- elaborate uh, uh, the impeachment uh, issue, especially the effort to uh, shut it down at the end at the point at which th- one of the most interesting things is a, a man like uh, Lamar Alexander says uh, that he thinks this is highly inappropriate conduct, um, that he thinks should be decided, however, in an election rather than throwing a, a, a president out. Now, that argument I don't think is defensible, but it's plausible. It's a plausible argument. But if it is a plausible argument, it also implies that he had no good reason not to give the American people evidence and testimony under oath about the issue he thought was so inappropriate right. I agree. rather than propaganda in a campaign right. for the campaign. Right. So from his own perspective, we should have had witnesses and documents. So that will be an issue. The reason why we didn't have uh, will be an issue. And if it's if it's uh, I, I'm not a predictor. 
Uh, I'm just suggesting that these are resources that, if used skillfully, could be uh, helpful in the short term uh, uh, to actually uh, uh, deal with corruption of the, you know, we're, we're in a, republics go down by corruption historically, and right. that's where we are now. Right, so, right. right. And what about the process of impeachment? Uh, would, you know, at the core of Julia's question is that perhaps the founders didn't anticipate the ways in which the growth of the presidency uh, would undermine the safeguards or guardrails that they put in place. What should Congress do? What would you advise the next, if there's a, uh, a Senate majority leader as well as a House speaker? who really want to improve the process and improve congressional oversight, what would you suggest to them? My story is that notwithstanding Trump and Trumpism, that the long-term problem in the 20th century uh, for American governance has been Congress, not the presidency. Um, That if you just take Trump for a moment out of the equation— because really, a lot of it has to do with his personality exploiting the the the, the office. Um, and if you take him out of the equation, what you see is an increasingly, uh, and to many people's minds, imperial presidency. But not because of an imperial character of the office holder, but because of the abdication and deference of the Congress to the president, delegating away their own powers over budget making and war. And uh, not standing up to vote on the tough issues and leaving it to the president to decide, Um, not exercising their powers aggressively, transferring power so as to avoid blame for tough decisions, all that sort of stuff. So the answer is that it's the Congress that needs to be fixed. Do I know how to do that? Not in a shorthand. But I actually think that the Congress being fixed is the fix to the problem of presidential power. That makes a lot yeah, of sense. Yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Zachary, for, for you and your uh, friends who care a lot about politics, you're, you're wearing a political T-shirt now. You're following the presidential race. Uh, is this something that could motivate you to actually elect a Congress that would actually step in? Because that seems to be where, where Jeff's advice takes us, right? Is that Congress actually needs to stand up to presidents on both sides of the aisle who have been doing more things that approach abuse and defy Congress. Do, do, you, do you find that a motivating factor? I think that that's uh, one of the one of the benefits of of going through these processes is that um, a lot of us, uh, particularly young people, think of the presidency as the uh, figurehead of American politics, as the only office that matters. And I think that these processes remind us that uh, we have three equal branches and that uh, American democracy is complicated. It's not as right. simple as one person. Right. Right. It does seem, Jeff, like we've in the last few years emphasized the presidency in the courts uh, and, and but, forgot about Congress. But, you know, um, uh, your, your Zachary's remark just made me think that um, the potential here is really greater than I just imagined till you started talking. Because, you know, an ordinary person, an ordinary citizen doesn't really get to know their president, personally speaking. But you can get to know your congressperson. Absolutely. And you can have real conversations with them. And you can say, I'm interested in all the policy issues you're talking about, but I'm also interested in this idea of uh, a congressman or woman who stands up for the institution, who does the right thing, 
and ask, what would you do in these sorts of circumstances? And would you stand up to a president from your own party who did the kinds of stuff that Trump did? And a lot of these people are going to say, yes, I would. Yes, I will. And if they promise their constituents that, they're going to do it. Right. Right. I think that's a great point and a great place to close. I mean, part of what we've seen, I think, in this impeachment, as we did in Bill Clinton's and in the others before, but particularly in these last two, is the the vital role that Congress plays. And uh, if Congress doesn't stand up, uh, to presidential abuses of power, those abuses will continue. It's not simply about Donald Trump right, in this case. Right. And I think all of us as citizens recognizing that there's a historical imperative to pay attention to Congress and to demand that Congress uh, stand up for its oversight responsibilities, I think is a, is a really important takeaway. Jeff, thank you for your insights and all the work you've Thanks done around these issues. And Zachary, thank you as always for your wonderful poem and your insights as well. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.